guess give them a second here to get off the stage and find a seat. Uh, it's a little different. It's a little different. Uh, yeah, a little, a little bit of an adjustment. I'm not, I wasn't sure if I should have just come up a little later and just like have everyone watch it. Just watch, just in silence, watch you guys get off the stage. I wasn't sure. Um, no, good morning. My name's Zach. I'm the youth pastor here at Prairie View Christian Church, and I'm very, very um, excited to be here with you, to be given the opportunity to preach this morning. Um, as many of you know, my wife Hannah and I, we recently became parents back in August um, to a little baby boy. Uh, his name's Theo. And having just recently become a father, one of the things are there are some some things that I'm really looking forward to. I'm really excited for um, to just share with him things that I loved as a child, as a little boy one day, once upon a time um, that I, I'm really looking forward to uh, riding bikes, throwing a ball. I, I, I just I cannot wait. And I realized that. He's not even five months old yet, and so there's a lot of time between him riding a bike and us throwing a ball and what he's doing now. And I also realize he's got some growing to do and a lot of exciting things that will happen in the meantime. Uh, his first steps, his first words. Hopefully he says dad-da before mama, but we'll see about that. Um, no, but in all honesty, I'm very excited uh, to have the opportunity to raise a little boy. And one of the things I'm really, really looking forward to share with him is Legos. Um, when I was, when I was small, the, I didn't want anything more for Christmas than Legos. And I'm convinced that at some point in the life of a little boy, Legos just show up in your house and then they never leave. Um, and so I wanted more. It wasn't that I wanted Legos. I just wanted more because they were already there. Uh, and the, there's a really good chance that you've been in a store recently with it having just been Christmas and you've seen the Legos, whether or not you were shopping for Legos, if you even like pass through there, the displays are massive and the sets are are really creative, really interesting and, and appealing to small children like like myself once upon a time. And a lot of them are, are pretty simple. They're pretty straightforward. Uh, they're meant for kids, but there are some that are complicated. They are complex. And if you don't believe me, when I started thinking through this illustration, I wanted to be sure I wasn't making this up that like indeed the child's toy Legos can be hard to build. And so I'm looking into it a little bit and like I was dumbfounded. I think I showed this to Hannah and was just like, I cannot believe this exists. Um, if you're familiar with Star Wars, if you're not, that's okay because the numbers I'm going to give you are just going to clear it up. But they offer a Death Star like Lego model. Okay. If you know what the Death Star is, great. If not, it's almost 5,000 pieces and costs $500 for Legos. And, and, and they're all a bunch of small little bricks. They're all like the same color. And you're given a picture book to put these together. It would be hard. Like even the smartest of us, that would still take time. So imagine you sit down to build a Lego set and you've got all the instructions in front of you. It's, it's still going to be difficult. I promise there are difficult sets out there. But imagine a totally different scenario, right, where you sit down and Legos have just been dumped out in front of you. And you're told that these Legos in front of you, they make something, right? They fit together for something, but no one's telling you what they are. You don't have instructions in front of you. Don't, you don't have a picture or a box to say, hey, this is how these all fit together. And you're expected to build the one thing that those pieces are, are meant to build. That would not be possible. You might try. You might be brave. You might not be a quitter. You might be... Uh, entrepreneurial and go for it and say, I'm going to do this. I'm not going to be stopped. But I know before long you would give up because you would be putting these pieces together and you'd, you know, you'd get, I don't know, 10 or 20 pieces. You'd have a little shape in your hand and you'd have to look at it and wonder to yourself if those, if what you've made there even is something at all. Like you might've put a great cube of bricks together, but it might not have anything to do with the project that's supposed to happen in front of you. Right? And you'd ask yourself this question, hundreds and hundreds, well, does this go here or here? Does this work at all? And you, you, you might even stop before you can ask yourself hundreds of times. You would, just, you would just give up. And in the grand scheme of things, that's not a big deal because it would just be Legos. However, when we do this very same thing with the Bible, it comes with massive implications. Before we go any further this morning, uh, would you bow your heads with me and pray? Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for this morning that you've gotten us here together, that we can um, gather and sing your praises and uh, 
come under the teaching of your word, Lord, that we would be united together by our love for you, our worship for you. Um, Speak to us this morning through your word, God, that I would be an instrument in your hands, that it's not me, or uh, that I would would just do my job and point uh, the people here and myself, our hearts, to you. Um, So be with us, give us uh, attentiveness and, and open ears and open hearts. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray all these things. Amen. So the Bible is many things, um, and, and it's certainly complex. For as simple and straightforward as it can be, it's also complicated, right? It's, it's written by like 40 different men over thousands of years in a culture like almost entirely removed from us. And so we come to parts, and it doesn't make sense. And so in a sense, the Bible has been spilled out on the floor in front of us. We've been told that it fits together, that it makes something, but we don't have the slightest idea what that something actually is. And as a result, we find the Bible Bible impossibly difficult to read because it appears impossibly difficult to understand. With it being New Year's, a lot of people are looking at Bible reading plans and getting through the Bible in a year. And I know because I've tried those, you might get through Genesis, you might even make it through Exodus, but when you hit Numbers... You're toast. And so that it doesn't make sense. We, we don't have an idea of how to incorporate that into our Bible reading. So we just skip over those names and all the genealogies because that doesn't really mean anything to me in the 21st century. Right. So or or on the other hand. Right. So on the one hand, we're like, uh, it doesn't even make sense. I'm just not going to read it. Or we do know that the Bible fits together to make something. But we've kind of accepted that what that something is, is just like a pile of Legos on the floor. Like, if I just dumped out Legos in front of you and said, go ahead, make what you're supposed to make, and you were just like, done. That's kind of what we do with the Bible sometimes. We see it as a jumbled mess and nothing more, and we think that's the something that it's supposed to be. So we've got, you know, we've got all these little tidbits of usefulness and wisdom. We can go to the Proverbs and find Good things about money and relationships and marriage and, and, and all sorts of things like that. But then we just kind of dump them back in and, and it, again, d- doesn't make sense. And what happens is we ignore the more hidden parts of the Bible, like Numbers, like Leviticus. These more challenging, difficult things to read. You hit the prophets, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, some of these names that you might have not ever even have looked at in the second half of your Old Testament because they're just in an entirely different world from you. And it's, it's really hard for us to read that and find something there and figure out how does that impact me here today in 2017. So most of us understand this truth about the Bible, that it's God's word. And as God's word, it's meant to be understood together, that it, it means something. It is supposed to tell us something. Uh, e- even just the fact if you have a physical Bible with you, it's bound together. Like it's unified just by being bound together under the title, the Holy Bible. So we, we get that, but, but we don't understand what, what it is. And so what happens is we get lost in ancient culture and history. And and all we're left with are some clever little one-liners that we like to post over pictures of things like trendy photos, right? Kind of Sort of like what that looked like, not not more than, I don't know, five minutes ago, and, and that, I was responsible for that. But anyways, the Bible ends up just being nothing more than this source for one-liners and quotes and, and clever sayings. <clears throat> and can the Bible be that? Yes, absolutely. The Bible can be inspirational. It is inspirational, and if it's not inspirational then that speaks to a different problem. Like, There's a different problem there if you come to the word of God and it doesn't move you, it doesn't encourage you, it doesn't inspire you. But we have missed the mark. Like, We are so wide of the target if that's all the Bible is. If all the Bible is is a handbook for life or a manual for life, as it's very, very often been called, then we have come so short of the beauty of the word of God. Again, like I said, the Bible is absolutely useful for living. It has lots to say about living and life. It's full of inspirational and encouraging words. But ultimately, the Bible's purpose, the Bible's primary, most important, most central aim is the glory of God as revealed in Jesus. So this morning, I have labored to make the point, ironically not yet going to the Bible, but I've labored to make the point that we need to see the single thread running through the Bible that ties it all together. That it's not just a mess on the floor like a pile of Legos. 
but it's a unified body of work that's been supernaturally inspired by God to tell us a a story, a single story. And that story is God's work to bring about salvation through Jesus Christ. So my aim this morning is to quickly, quickly, quickly move through several thousand years of history through the Old Testament, a flyover of sorts, to show us that story. So we can be pointed back to that story and we can see how God has been working and maybe make sense of our Bible reading plan uh, going forward for this year. Like I said, the Old Testament covers thousands of years, so I'm going to have to leave things out, important things. We could spend weeks, years, really, uh, talking about just the lives of some of the lives of some of these people. Um, but I'm going to start with the beginning, as any good story should, or maybe like two scenes after the beginning. So if you would turn with me to Genesis 3, um, we're going to look at Genesis 3. There should be Bibles in the seats in front of you. I will have the, most of the scripture I reference on the screen, or I guess you can turn on your phone and, and uh, follow along there. Um, as you're turning, this is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the serpent. And so we see this unfolding in front of us. And the main idea here is it's the fall. It's the entry of sin into the world. And and what we often overlook, I think, or what's often like skipped over, not intentionally, but we don't recognize the immediate grace of God in response to this fall, right? So God creates the world. He speaks it into existence. He says it's all good. Then he reaches down into the world, into the dust that he has spoken into existence and makes Adam, breathes life into him, makes him fall deeply asleep, and then makes Eve from Adam as a helper for him. Then the serpent, who is embodied by Satan, the enemy, um, the evil one, right? The serpent comes and tempts Eve and says, hey, this thing, this tree over here with the fruit on it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, like, go ahead, go for it. And it's, it's, the, it's literally the only thing that they've been commanded not to do in the entire universe. And Eve falls for the lie. She goes for it. She, she falls for the lie. She buys in. And she sins. And Adam is standing by not doing anything. And he sins too. And then they realize what's happened. They're, they're embarrassed. They're ashamed. And so they hide. They hide from each other. And they hide from God. And it says that God comes into the garden. And he asks, where are you? God didn't. God knew. Like God, God wasn't coming in like, oh, I can't find you. What's going on? He knew. He, he just kind of subtly calling him out like, I know what you've done. And so what we'll pick up in Genesis 3.15 are three curses that he pronounces on uh, the serpent, on Eve, and then on Adam. And this is the end of um, the curse that he's put, put on the serpent. And it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This will probably, hopefully, be familiar to our students who heard this in a Christmas uh, message I gave it back in December, um, but it's been said that one way of describing the entire plot of the Bible is, is seeing it as a war between the serpent and the seed of the woman, right? Adam and Eve sided with the serpent. They have sided with the enemy, and God is like, no, no. They willfully rejected him, and he immediately says, this is not how it's going to work out. This is not how it's going to be. I'm going to put war between the serpent, Satan, and the seed of the woman, right? I'm going to deliver my people, and God makes a promise. So again, we're going to move from this here in a sec, but what I want to see is we have sin, and immediately we have a promise from God, and it's completely of grace, right? Adam and Eve, all they've done to this point is mess up. They just messed up, and God is like, I'm going to make this right. Um, So we're going to jump forward now to Abraham. Um, So we're going to go to Genesis 12, uh, if you could turn there with me. Um, And as we're doing this, we're going to pass over Cain and Abel, who are important, and Noah and the flood, also important, and the Tower of Babel, also important. Um, Like I said, I've got to be mindful of time and speak quickly to get through the Old Testament. Um, But these, at least in part, show us the sinfulness of man, right? The sin enters the world in the Garden of Eden, and then these next couple things that are told to us in the Bible are showing, like, the sin sin and sinfulness in the heart of man just kind of blossom, um, for lack of a better word. But we're going to look at Abraham, um, and he was originally called Abram. His name's changed to Abraham, so we're going to find his name given to us as Abram in Genesis 12. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and read that now. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And it will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
Right? So God calls Abraham and he makes a promise. He promises descendants. He promises many, many offspring and he promises land. So Abraham, Abram is 75 years old at the time this happens. And so when he is still childless several years later, he's a little concerned. Right? He's, he's a little worried. He, he says to God, like, you know, he, maybe he's 80 years old. I'm still without a child. What good is your, like, what good is this promise going to be? My heir is a servant in my house. And God, God speaks to him and says, look at the stars in the sky. If you can count them, that's how many your offspring will be. And then he promises the land to him and says, I'm going to give you this land. And he explains the borders to it. It's like, I'm going to give this land to your children. And this promise that God makes with Abram, because he's still Abram at this point, this promise that he makes is one-sided. He doesn't say, Abraham, or Abram, if you do these things, then I will do this. He just says, I'm going to do this, right? And so we see this promise from God uh, working out in Abram's life of land and, and children, um, so Abram's name is then switched to Abraham, which means father of many. And eventually, him and his wife have a son named Isaac, through whom God's promises would be kept. Uh, only shockingly, God commands Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. His one and only son, or his one son that he's waited so long for that's supposed to fulfill the promise, God says, offer him to me, kill him. And miraculously, Abraham obliges. Because he believes that God will not break his promise. He believes that he could go up, offer Isaac as a sacrifice, and God could raise him from the dead to stay true to the promise he has made. So he, he's got Isaac. He's ready to offer him. He's got a knife in his hand. And, and he's like seconds, moments from, from doing it. And God speaks and says, no, 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 don't do this. Don't do this. He offers a substitute, right? There's a ram. Uh, they find a ram, and they kill the ram in his, in his place. And God says to Abraham, because of your obedience, because of your faith working itself out in obedience, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through your offspring. And so we're going to jump forward again. I mentioned Isaac. There's a lot with Isaac and equally a lot with his son Jacob that could be looked at. Um, Jacob was the heir to the promise of God. So if we're tracing this promise along, it's Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel. So Jacob and Israel are the same person. Um, when you hear about the Israelites, they're the Israelites because they're the descendants of Israel, Jacob. Um, but Jacob has 12 sons, and the 11th of these sons is Joseph. And so we're going to pick back up with the story of Joseph. Um, and if you could turn to Genesis 50, um, verse 20. I'm not going to read it just yet, but um, Joseph is favored by his father, Jacob. So through the life of Jacob, you kind of see that he's not so great of a guy. And he's the kind of guy that would clearly love one of his sons more than the others. And so his older brothers, Joseph's older brothers, that is, hate him for it. And out of their hatred, they sell him into slavery and tell Jacob, their father, that his favorite son had been killed, torn to pieces by a wild animal. Through a series of wild twists and turns, Joseph eventually ends up in Egypt as Pharaoh's right-hand man. And years later, when a famine hits... Jacob's family, the Israelites, come to Egypt looking for aid. Of course, they never expected to see Joseph there, much less a second-in-command. But Joseph graciously forgives his brothers and uses his power and authority to not only save them, but to help them prosper in Egypt. And so one of my favorite verses is found in Genesis 50, verse 20. And so we'll read that now. It's Joseph speaking, and he says, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so in the life of Joseph that we are told in Genesis, we see God's provision, like unbelievable, hard to comprehend, like how he's pulling the strings in, in, in this. His provision, his work, his power to fulfill his promise, right? If the Israelites had died of a famine, his promise to Abraham would have been broken, Right? There's no promised land, and there's certainly no offspring. But through the most painful of circumstances, God has preserved those people and has stayed true to his promise 
to Abraham. Now, over time, a new Pharaoh arises, and Joseph dies, and that generation of people dies. And so the people in power in Egypt forget about Joseph. They don't know about Joseph, and they ultimately see the Israelites as a threat because the Israelites are prospering. They are growing in number. And so this Egyptian, new Egyptian Pharaoh, he commands that all baby boys born to the Israelites be thrown into the Nile River, along with forcing them into really brutal, hard, oppressive slavery. Naturally, with the whole baby thing, the Israelite parents were not eager to obey. And so one such baby is born, Moses. And for three months, his mom hides him, and I don't know how that's possible. I, like, I don't know how you keep a, a, a one-month-old quiet and hide them from anybody, um, but she does. But at some point, three months sounded good, I guess, and so she realized she couldn't hide him anymore. And so she builds a little basket and floats him out into the river. And wouldn't you know, Pharaoh's daughter herself is there. She finds Moses, takes him to be her own, raises him in the house of Pharaoh. And so Moses grows up with wealth and privilege. Yet if you know this story, and if you don't, I'm going to tell it to you as quickly as I can. But he eventually rejects those things to lead his people, right? He, lead, he, he rejects his wealth and his privilege. He could have lived a very good, very comfortable life in the house of Pharaoh, but he rejects it to lead the Israelites out of Egypt one day. However, the Israelites don't immediately see it that way, so Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness running from the Egyptians and the Israelites. And while he's there, God speaks to him through a burning bush. And he says, he says Moses, I'm going to use you to lead my people out of Egypt. And, and Moses, you know, he hesitates, he struggles with that, but he ends up returning to Egypt. And through a series of plagues, if you're familiar with this, there are ten plagues. And the final plague on the Egyptians is that every firstborn in the land of Egypt, including the cattle, like there, there were no one, no one was being spared or no, nothing was being spared, um, would be killed. So all the firstborn in the land of Egypt would be, would be killed. The only people who would be spared, the only households that would be spared of this pain were those who would cover the, their door with the blood of a lamb, right? They would be passed over. So God uses Moses, leads his people out of the land of Egypt, leads them through the heart of the Red Sea on dry land, parts the sea, does another miracle, parts the sea. When the Egyptians come through, the sea collapses back over them and they're killed. And the Israelites go on into the wilderness and, and they begin to journey to the promised land that God had promised to their forefather, Abraham. And three months after leaving Egypt, the Israelites arrive at Sinai, Mount Sinai, and God gives them the Ten Commandments. And a lot, again, I'm skipping through a lot, going over a lot quickly. A lot could be made of the Ten, a lot has been and ought to be made of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're not going to do that this morning, but we'll look at Exodus 20, verse 2. Um, when, he, when God gives these, the Ten Commandments to these people, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery, right? And so what we see is God's power of deliverance. The Egyptians were locked in slavery. There was no chance of them inheriting a promised land if they were slaves in a different place. And God, fulfilling his promise, working to fulfill his promise, brings them out and delivers them. However, if, again, if you know this story, you know that they end up wandering in the wilderness for many, many years. God leads them, you know, through the wilderness. They get, they're on, like, the cusp of the promised land, and they send spies in. They're like, okay, let's send some spies in. Let's see what we're, what we're looking at. And they go, and when they come back, they're like, man, the food looks great. This looks great. That looks great. But the people, the people, they're giants. We could never defeat them. And Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, one, verse 127, I, I'm not going to have it, but it tells you, it tells us that the Israelites believed that God hated them and that God had brought them out of Egypt to kill them like at the hands of these people in the promised land. And so they'd forgotten all the miracles, all the, all the amazing things God has done and rejected God. And it's this inclination of all of us, not just the Israelites, but all of us to reject God. And, and so they didn't believe that God would be faithful to his promise. And as a result, God forbade them from going in with the exception of two people, Joshua and Caleb. And, and Everyone, including Moses, was going to die, and their children would inherit the promised land. So when Moses dies, Joshua takes his place as the leader of the Israelites. And Joshua leads them into the land of Canaan. And after 40 years in the wilderness, they conquer the people there. However, when Joshua dies, the Israelites enter a particularly dark time in their history, recorded in the book of Judges. They, the very last sentence of the book sums it up well. It's Judges 21:25, and it says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we see 
through these people, this, this group of people, God's chosen people, in fact, the need for a godly leader. And so enter David, right? Um, if you could, I know we're turning a lot. Uh, that's kind of the nature of, I guess, what I'm trying to do this morning. If you could turn with me to First Chronicles 17, verse 11. We're going to pick up there in a second. I'm just going to say that up to this point, right, God had ruled essentially as the king of Israel, but the Israelites did not see it that way. And so they demanded a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations that, that had kings who would lead them into battle and win victories for them. And so they chose this man named Saul because he was tall and handsome. Saul didn't work out. And God appoints his own man, David, a very unlikely candidate, a shepherd, the youngest of his family, not a warrior in any tra- traditional sense. And God is very good to David in spite of David's failings, his many failings. And God makes a promise to David found in First Chronicles. So we'll go ahead and read that now. It's First uh, Chronicles 17, verse 11. It says, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Lots of forevers in there. But even with this promise, David's sons mess up a lot. The Davidic kings fail and fail and fail, and they go after other gods. It's not long before the kingdom splits into two over these sinful disputes, and these two nations go. And in this period of this of this period in history, there are not very many good or godly kings. And eventually, God looks at them, and in their sin, He's like, "You know what? I'm because you've done all these things. I'm going to conquer you." And the Assyrians, this really nasty, wicked, no good nation empire conquers both both kingdoms and what they did was when they'd come in they wouldn't let you stay where you lived right they wouldn't do that because it's too much of a threat it's too risky to let to come in and conquer and then let them stay there so they would take them and exile them and so again we're seeing the israelites being removed from the promised land and they go into exile and in exile we find the consequences and disobedience uh, or the consequences of disobedience rather but but still god's commitment to his promises to them and so we'll, we'll read together Jeremiah 33. Um, Jeremiah 33, 19, uh, starting in verse 19. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant. And then skipping down to verse 25, he repeats himself. Essentially, he says, thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and fixed the order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have Mercy on them. Even in exile, God has not forgotten his promise of land and a kingdom and offspring to match the stars in the sky. He says it twice. Like, as sure as you can count on day coming, as sure as you can count on night coming, you can count on these promises being fulfilled. I am not going to give up on them. In exile, the Israelites are away from the land of promise. They're ruled by a foreigner. They do not have their own king, let alone a Davidic king. They can hardly be sure of their own futures let alone the future of their children. But God has not forgotten his promises. He's not broken his covenant with them. And one day he does bring them back into the promised land. That's where um, there's uh, between the Old and the New Testament, or at the end of the Old Testament, rather, you find the Israelites making their way back to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land, to rebuilding the temple. And these things happen. And that's kind of where we find ourselves in the New Testament. Right? So I've, this morning, again, tried to very quickly very quickly get through and fly or fly over the Old Testament. But what does this mean, right? I've, I've labored to tell these stories and say all these things quickly, leaving things out, highlighting certain things. What, was, what has my point been? It's God is not a supporting character. God was not a supporting character in the life of Moses or David or Abraham, right? There are no awards going to God for best supporting role. It wasn't, wow, Moses, you did such a good job, and the couple lines that God had were pretty good too. God created the world. 
When Adam and Eve sinned, it was God who enforced the consequences. And it was God who made the promise that the head of the serpent would be crushed. It was God that called Abraham. God gave Abraham and Sarah a son in their old age. The Bible literally says, rather harshly, honestly, that they were as good as dead when that child was born. God brought Joseph to power in Egypt so that his backstabbing brothers would be saved. God worked miracles in delivering the Israelites from Egypt. And God provided their food and their water while they wandered. God appointed David, and God promised to David that God would make his his sons rule forever. God sent the Israelites into exile, knowing that he was capable and would one day bring them back. The Bible, then... It's not concerned with us. It's not concerned with us, primarily concerned with us as individuals. It's not concerned with inspiring you or encouraging you or making you feel good about yourself or giving you a positive self-identity or a checklist of things to do to be a better person, right? The Bible, in particular, what we have looked at this morning, the Old Testament, is concerned with showing you God. And what do we see when we look at God. We see a God who is intimately, if not incomprehensibly, like beyond our understanding, involved in history. It's hard to see sometimes how he was pulling the strings. When you look at the story of Joseph, how he was working those things out to one day deliver his people. It's hard to see that, but that is the God we come to and worship. We see a God of love and compassion and forgiveness and grace and mercy. A God who will not spare discipline but will never allow his people to be ruined. And so it's extremely easy to pick up the Old Testament and look for these heroes, the heroes that I've highlighted, like David and Moses, and seek to follow in their footsteps, seek to be like them. What leadership principles can I learn from Moses, or what Goliath can I slay in my life? But we should be humbled when we come to these individuals in the Old Testament, right? Who can compare with Abraham? When he was called, he left everything behind to go into the wilderness to nothing but a promise. Who can compare to Abraham who was willing to sacrifice his only son? Who can compare with Joseph who readily forgave his brothers who had had betrayed him, hated him, lied lied about him, and sent him into slavery? who, Who among us is like Moses that led thousands of whining, complaining fools for 40 years in a wilderness? Yet the purpose of these men showing up in the Bible isn't to give us an example of how we are to live. Yes, we can learn things from them. Yes, they can serve as an example. But more importantly, these people have been set before us that we might see that even the greatest among us entirely depend upon the Lord. It's God who has to deliver us. David, Moses, Joseph, and Abraham were all entirely dependent on God, that God would be faithful to what he said he would do. And we see this in the Old Testament and working its way up into the New. So like I said earlier, um, the story of the Bible is the story of God's work to bring about salvation through Jesus Christ. God didn't stop working at the close of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we have Jesus, who was the fulfillment of these promises, right? Luke twenty four twenty seven. if you turn with me there, um, will be the last text we look at. But Luke twenty four twenty seven is... Um, fairly well known. It's uh, a story. Jesus has died, he's, but he's resurrected, and he's walking uh, on a road between towns. And these people are walking, and they see him, and he, he, they don't recognize him. But he asks them, like, why do, you, why do you look sad? Like, what's going on? And they're like, are you the only, like, person who hasn't heard about these things? And they're like, this man Jesus, <laughs> excuse me, he was here, he lived, but we thought he was this Messiah, but now he's dead. And he's like, his response is like, you fools. Like, don't you know the, what the Bible says? Like, the Bible says that Christ had to suffer. And then in Luke 24, 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, right, so the Old Testament, he interpreted, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, again, the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. Jesus is the son of David who will reign in peace as king forever. And one day he's returning and he will establish his kingdom. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham that's blessed the nations. Jesus is the one through whom Abraham's offspring are countless. Right? Through faith, we are adopted into that family. Jesus has come as a better Moses. Moses led his people out of Israel, out of slavery and bondage. Jesus has come and offered us deliverance from the bondage of sin, the hurt and pain and suffering of sin and death. 
Jesus is a better Joseph who saved his brothers, who saved these people even though they had hated him. Jesus offers forgiveness to those who have even hated God. And lastly, Jesus was the seed of the woman that ultimately crushed the serpent's head. Throughout the entire Bible, all of history to this very day, God has been working out his plan to crush the serpent's head. And in your life now, in this church right now, throughout the world, God is using and working out his promise of defeating sin and death through Jesus Christ. And this message, these words, they have power to change your heart. When you have seen God for all his glory, all his goodness, all his majesty and power and grace and loving kindness, you will be changed. So my aim this morning was not to give you a list to check off or a specific plan to read the Bible in a year. My aim, my hope, and my prayer has been to show you a very big God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus and to show you him as fully as my words allow in order that our hearts, my heart, your heart, might be captivated by this big God and turn to him willingly in love. So see Christ in scripture and love him more and more deeply. Read the Bible to have your heart turn to our wonderful God who has offered salvation in Jesus. Look and see the persistent, faithful, forgiving, gracious and merciful love of God ultimately displayed in Jesus. Know that when you have renounced and rejected and turned from your sin and your heart has been tuned to love the Lord, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I, I just, I pray, I ask, I hope that this morning I have proclaimed to you, God, that our role as as teachers, as, as preachers, is to proclaim your word, to make you known, and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And, um, Lord, as we start a new year and things are turning over and culturally things are turning over, we're looking to turn over a new leaf or whatever and make changes, God, that we would be just impacted by the gospel, by the good news, by the fact that you're not a distant, far-off God who is kind of like a butler who wants us to feel good, but that you're passionate, that you're the star, that you've been working through history, through time to be faithful to your promises. And so that if we love you and all your goodness and all your grace and, and all your kindness, that we will always be satisfied because we know that you are working out your plans perfectly. I want to thank you for this church. Thank you for this body of believers that you've uh, brought together, that we have the opportunity to love and serve and worship you. Um, be with us the rest of this service as we uh, take communion and, and move into our time of offering. Um, I ask in all these things, all these things I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we uh, enter into a time of communion, um, I was thinking about it this week, and uh, we had a new turn of events in our household, and we started getting kids from the neighborhood just starting showing up, uh, just walking in, knocking all the time. And there's this one kid, Hayden. He comes over about five times a day. And now when he shows up, my kids are like, Hayden. And, um, and just like every new kid that starts coming into your house, you know, every, every household has kind of a set of rules. And, and Hayden uh, doesn't know any of our rules. And uh, he's kind of socially inept. And he doesn't really get the hint when we try to, like, tell him things. And like the other day, I was putting the baby to sleep. And he, he came in and looked in and saw that I was, you know, trying to get the baby to sleep and he went and grabbed a bugle yes i have a bugle by the way uh, army regulation bugle and he just started blowing it at the top of his lungs and so i had said hayden we have rules here you can't play the bugle plus it's kind of gross because everybody in the house puts their lips on it you really don't want what we have um but i remember that as a kid you know you would go uh, to different places and different people's houses and they had kind of different rules and it was always a kind of awkward if you didn't know how things worked and also uh, <clears throat> My family traveled uh, to different churches, and um, we would we would uh, go do concerts. I was the youngest of five boys, and my mom played piano, and my dad would lead music, and we would go to these different churches. And it was kind of like the little Christian Partridge family, and um, we would we would show up. And every church had kind of their own rules and the way that they would do things. And I remember uh, going to a Catholic church, and my my parents were telling me about communion there, and that it was real wine. And so I was excited at 10 years old to have my first taste of alcohol, and uh, hoping that I wouldn't get drunk and embarrass the family uh, at that point. Uh, and then I remember one time we went to a Baptist church, and I started to take communion, and uh, the kid next to me said, you can't have it. I was like, 
I, I've been baptized. He goes, you have to be a member here. So there's all these different rules. And, um, and even when you look into Scripture, Paul uh, had to set some rules and some boundaries for, for the way that people uh, started engaging in communion. Uh, it got a little unruly. But what I want to do is go back to maybe the first direction where Jesus is sitting at uh, the meal. It was a feast of remembrance. Uh, and this Seder meal, everything about the meal was to remember how God delivered his people, his chosen ones, out of Egypt and into the promised land. Everything about the meal. And Jesus was saying, you know what, we're changing all this because uh, what I want you to do is when you take this, I want you to remember me. Don't remember uh, the past, but I want you to remember me because now I'm the broken bread. Uh, I am the poured out wine. And... Um, and, and all he said was, his only direction was, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So I want to read a scripture uh, to help us uh, this morning. And by the way, uh, when, when the Jews would remember, it was, it was always about uh, the deliverance uh, out of a life of slavery and the hope of this promised land. And Jesus uh, was, was very similar. His was a life uh, delivered out of a life of slavery to sin and death. And the promised land is really a person. It's, it's him. And, and this, this life of peace is really a, a person in, in Jesus. So I want to read this scripture. It's, it's at the end of First Peter chapter 2. It says, this is the kind of life you've been invited into. The kind of life Christ lived. He suffered everything that came his way so that you would know that it could be done. And also uh, know how to do it step by step. He never did one thing wrong. Not once said anything amiss. They called him everything, every name in the book, and he said nothing back. He suffered in silence, content to let God set things right. He used his servant body to carry our sins to the cross so we could be rid of sin, free to live the right way. His wounds became your healing. You were lost sheep with no idea who you were or where you were going. Now you're named and kept for good by the shepherd of your souls. Um, so the way we do uh, communion here is uh, um, we have servers that will come and they'll, they'll pass the grape juice and the bread. And you can take that at your, uh, by yourself. We're going to sing a song first. Um, and you can either sit or stand. It doesn't really matter. Um, but I hope that you can remember Jesus. Maybe remember uh, maybe your favorite scripture in the Bible. Maybe your favorite story. Maybe your favorite uh, thing that he's done in your life. Um, but this is, this is our feast of remembrance. So... Um, Let's pray. Dear Lord, we, we, uh, we really want to come to the table this morning with hearts that are uh, longing to remember you. And, um, and I pray that that's really the only um, direction that we remember when we come to this table. That we don't think about all of the, the right ways or the wrong ways to do the traditions, but instead we, th- we focus on, on what you did for us. And so uh, we praise your name and we, we thank you for what you did. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Came sin, who no sin, we might become his righteousness, become himself, carry the cross, love so
And now we come to another part of our, our worship service where we get to worship uh, with our tithes and offerings. And um, I can't tell you how many people that I run into that uh, really don't know God. They don't know Jesus, but they always have an idea of God. And their idea of God is that he's some accountant uh, sitting up in heaven with this ledger and he kind of keeps track. He's like counting beans, you know, making sure that you do all the things. But I think some of us kind of still have this uh, tendency to think of God that way when it comes to like making sure we've got all the stuff checked off in our life that we're giving the right amount. There's got to be a 10%. But really, God just loves a cheerful giver and that it comes out of this place that we want to bless and not because we want to make sure we've got all of our, our checks uh, marked off on the paper. So this morning, um, as we enter into worship in, in our offering, I want to, I just want to say a quick prayer. Dear Lord, we, we really long to bless you and to really about, be about your kingdom and, uh, and we really want to make it about your work and not our works. And so we pray that, uh, this money really is, is used for the benefit of, of your, uh, getting your message and your love and your grace. Uh, out into the lost world, and uh, that we could use it uh, to the very best of our abilities. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Close us in prayer, and then we'll sing one more song before we leave. Um, so if you'd bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this day you've given to us, that you've brought us here, God, um, with various things going on in our lives. Lord, that we would look to you um, in our need and also in our joy. Thank you for this family of believers you've uh, put here, that we would love one another um, as you have loved us. Uh, so again, thank you. Fill our hearts with uh, just joy and love for you this morning and throughout this week and until we meet again here at this place. And it's in Jesus' precious name I ask and pray these things. Amen.